The Star Wars universe is constantly expanding. But how the heck are you going to keep tabs on it without a holocron? And where in the rim can I score the juiciest news and rumors? Ah, you seek State of the Empire, Consequence of Sound's Star Wars speculation podcast, where we look for news in Alderaan places. We dig into the Sarlacc pit of the internet for the hottest intel in the galaxy far, far away. Make Indiana Jones inquiries and keep watch for the latest on Willow. Find us on consequenceofsound.net or wherever you procure fine podcasts. It's the show you're looking for. Consequence Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to episode one of season two of Discography. I'm your host, Mark with a C. I'm not only a lifelong record geek and not only the host of this here show on the Consequence Podcast Network, but I've also been releasing lo-fi pop records independently for nearly 20 years now. Discography is a show where we look at a great artist through the lens of only their canon albums of first release material to see who they really are and how it all stacks up. Discography aims to educate and inform those listeners who really want to know. All opinions are that of the person that said them, because everything is subjective. Oh, I'm so excited to be back here for season two. Thank you all so much for your correspondence, for your love, for all the guesses. Trying to figure out who the next artist we talk about here on Discography is. And wonder no more. This season's all about Janet Jackson. That's right, Janet Jackson, singer, songwriter, dancer, actress, a household name, one of the biggest stars that the Western world has ever known, and though she sold over a hundred million records worldwide, very few have really poured through her canonical albums to see how they stack up on their own. Without giving too much away, Janet changed the face of pop culture numerous times over, yet she's more commonly known for the gossip and tabloid fodder that seems to follow her family at every step, not just unfair. So. Here's a few things you should know about how we're going to do this overview here at Discography. First off, it's no secret that Janet's likely best known for her music videos, but I'm going to try my best to only look at her actual albums without taking the visual side of the promotion into account. Also, many of her very biggest hits either only appeared on compilations, soundtracks, or as standalone singles, and as a result, as these tracks don't technically fall into the canon of full-length albums, they're not really eligible for dissertation on our show, but how many opinions on, say, Scream or Diamonds or the best things in life are free do you really need? And honestly, you should be thanking me right now, because if you got me started on how good her B-sides can be, this show would last for months. It's my hope to avoid looking at Janet through the lens of Importantly, how she compares to her brother and the rest of her family. Instead, I wanted to see Janet as a standalone artist, and I, I will personally only be bringing up the Jackson family when it's incredibly pertinent and unavoidable. And that aforementioned gossip, I'm not going to be taking that into account either unless it also had an effect on the musical output, and of course, there is that one bit of tabloid fodder that needs no introduction that we'll pretty much have to cover, but we're not there yet. So, happier times. Let's talk about a bit of Janet's background. Janet Demita Joe Jackson was born on May 16th in 1966, Gary, Indiana. Not only was she the baby of her family, she was the ninth child for the Jacksons. 
The Jacksons were noteworthy because all the male children in the family were in a very, very popular singing group. They need no introduction. Yet one of her first career choices was to be a horse jockey. Yet her first onstage appearance was in 1974 during the Jackson 5 family show in Las Vegas. And that show and her appearance on it was successful enough to get retooled into a variety show on ABC television, and audiences just loved Little Janet. Though that show only lasted two seasons, it was the first show of its kind completely propelled by a black family, and the importance of that really should not go unsaid, understated, or undersold. Janet was so immediately beloved, especially by Norman Lear, that by 1977, she'd been hired as the beloved Penny on Good Times, giving the dynamite J.J. Walker quite the run for his money in the popularity department. She also made it to shows like A New Kind of Family, and eventually landed the role of Todd Bridges' girlfriend on Different Strokes. Eventually did the show fame against her will, and she was kind of unsure what she wanted to do with her life in general, you know, as most of us are in our mid-teens. Her first duet was with her brother Randy, and she'd also sing backup vocals on her brother's uh, smash hit album called Off the Wall, not to mention a few of LaToya's tracks too. Now everything you just heard me tell you, <clears throat> attention please, again, everything you just heard me tell you. That is all shit that I had to research. In fact, Janet was so omnipresent in American culture that I never felt the need to really dive into her catalog and her story. It was everywhere. Why would I need to study it? I first heard of Janet from the strains of a cheap cassette dub of her album Control being played by another kid who lived in my house while that album was current. That's like 1986. But despite those songs that you sort of hear everywhere you go, I admittedly didn't really know all that much. I'd pick up the occasional record here and there when I could, eventually getting the whole vinyl collection for my wife. See, my wife's a dancer and an aerialist, and it's safe to say that Janet was one of her biggest inspirations and influences. But to actually pour through each disc, analyze it, see if it stays crunchy and milk and all that, well, I never did that. Not even a little bit. Until we began prep on this season of discography. Folks, I want to make this perfectly clear to you. I came into Janet Jackson's discography of albums completely green and wet behind the ears for this season. It occurred to me that since about 75% of my opinions about Janet's records are things I'd only recently taken in for the first time, I wouldn't have much of a chance to allow these albums to even try to stand the test of time. This makes me relatively impartial, but... I thought it would also be fair to have a lifelong Jacksons fanatic on the show with me, not to mention a voice from the black community, so we could also see how this came across to someone who pretty much grew up with the Jacksons and Janet all the time. So you got me, the newbie, and you got my guest that'll be popping in from time to time. And dear guest, how'd you like to introduce yourself? Hey everybody, I'm Chris Lebrain. I am a musician, a DJ, and I also am the leader of a band called Chris Lebrain's Campaign. And I'm also a member of a band called Universal Funk Orchestra. 
Now, when you say DJ, you're not talking about club DJ. I mean, you you are one of the last bastions that's still spinning the records on the airwaves. Indeed. I am a radio DJ. I am not a club DJ or anything of the sort. Is that WPRK? WPRK, uh, located at Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida. Beautiful Winter Park where you cannot speed. They they will <laughs> they will absolutely take you out. Absolutely, absolutely. Chris, for those who just finished the Frank Zappa season of discography and they're like, really, you jump from Frank Zappa, one of the most obtuse musicians, composers of all time, to Janet Jackson, who's kind of ever-present. Why? I feel that people don't really realize just how woven into the social fabric Janet is. What do you say to someone who doesn't get just how big Janet was? I mean, how big is Janet? How big is big for Janet? Take it like this, people. Whatever era you're from, even if you're from my era, you get to go ahead and play along. But if you're not from my era, which is roughly 1980 on down, hear us out. Imagine you're born in 1980. So all you know is 80s. Like a lot of people have the whole 80s guys because they were old enough to remember it in a time before it and a time after it. Imagine this is the world you are plopped into, the crazy 80s or whatever. As a child growing up, I only had a few heroes. Prince, Michael Jackson, maybe Pee Wee Herman on a good day, uh, Weird Al, <laughs> you know, and of course, Janet Jackson. Now where does Janet Jackson fit in with all those people? She was just as big as them, but younger. She was more relatable. It was almost like, Janet Jackson could have been somebody my brother went to high school with. She was so big at one point in the mid 80s. It was like, you know, everybody talks about Whitney Houston. You talk about your Mariah Carey's or whatever. Yeah, those people were huge, but at one point Janet had topped them all. Like I think it might have been her and Whitney might have vied for the top spot at one point as like that one R&B uh, female artist. Like Janet was so woven into the fabric. I mean, even if you think about popular culture, if you think about a movie like Friday, where the girl on the phone with Smokey mentions that she thinks she looks like Janet Jackson, you know? So she's in the lexicon of not only black culture, but pop culture because, you know, with the dancing from control, like doing the snake and all these other dances and stuff, you know, all those kids ate that up and you would think of Janet Jackson when you would do those things. She had catchphrases, she had the albums, she had the visuals and everything, and she happened to be the baby sister to the biggest pop star on the planet. What I think isn't paid uh, nearly enough attention to is that she was actually out doing Michael at times. Indeed. Now, not, if we're talking a pure end of game numbers deal, no, no. Oh yeah, no. no. But when you want to talk about competitive spirit, there were no two people more competitive. Like most people think, oh, well, you know, Michael's really competitive and everybody brings up the Prince Michael Jackson beef. Like they were competitive against each other, sort of. Michael was doing his thing. He was striving to just be number one. He was almost just competing with himself to be the top of the moon, you know? Whereas Prince just, he said in interviews, he thought he wasn't even trying to be like, 
he was trying to best his not his contemporaries but people that he loved in his head or whatever like you know he's trying to be the next miles davis who wasn't in his wheelhouse of yeah, you know. not necessarily who you think of as prince's contemporary yeah exactly not his contemporary so you know he wasn't thinking of who's the next guy on my level that i'm trying to best he was trying to so he so these two people are off on their own world the only difference is michael lives in a house with a person who is just as ambitious as him and has told him at points, maybe one day I'll beat one of your records. And, you know, he would laugh it off. And she honestly was trying. She desperately, I wouldn't say desperately, because that makes it seem like she was reaching. She, on her own terms, was trying to best Michael. And a lot of times, like, you know, post-bad, I think with Rhythm Nation, she kind of got him. You know? With Rhythm Nation, she actually did break some records, uh, seven top ten singles, yeah. uh, which ended up beating what he had for Thriller. Yeah. So there was, there was a year where she was actually bigger than Michael. I just, I feel like Janet doesn't get respect enough for laying the groundwork for almost everything that happened in big pop culture almost yeah no i mean she doesn't she gets a bad rap based on of course nipplegate but in addition to that the family she comes from there is so tabloid like in the jackson family that that shit always has overshadowed the talent in the family to an extent imagine just being able to praise michael jackson on all the talent and leave out like all the bullshit like that's a different scope of how you look at him, you know? And it's the same way with that entire family. And you, you can know? kind of do that with Janet because she's so relentlessly private too. Indeed, indeed. She seems on the surface to be the like most troublous one this side of Tito. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> Tito don't mess with nobody, nobody messes with Tito. But with Janet, yeah, she's kept her life so immensely private. It seems that she has more of a handle on these things. Whereas, you know, other family members, i.e. Michael, Jermaine, seem to be on the rails at any given point. Now, I've never heard anybody tell me a bunch of nasty stuff about Jackie. Jackie is the man. I love Jackie. I don't I don't know. I've heard bad stuff about Jackie. Marlon is my all-time favorite. Please, <laughs> if anybody's listening and, want, and is about to write to us to tell us a bunch of bad stuff about Jackie Jackson. No, we don't want to know. Yeah, I, just keep and, it to yourself. And we, know, and we know about the Paula Abdul thing. We don't need to bring that back up, okay? Chris, when I teased uh, at the very end of episode five or six of Discography, at the very end that our next artist would be a lady... I got a lot of guesses, and people really want to be right. They really want to be right. That's not a foreign concept to me. I want to be right as well. So when I said she, I started getting all kinds of guesses. People were guessing Kate Bush. That's a great guess. Madonna, Sinead O'Connor, that was a really good guess. Bjork, any manner of ladies that had a, a sizable discography. Yeah. Why do you think that somehow... Janet Jackson can be one of the world's biggest stars, and nobody thought to guess Janet. Not a single person! I think, unfortunately, for Janet's discography at this point, people usually rely on the visual more than the audio, because the Jacksons, you know, even though, you know, she's an entity unto, unto herself, but the Jackson family, you know, whereas, you know, they are like, you know, the first family of black music. They also were 
the first visual black family of black music. So it was like, they were all about the image from videos on down. So when you think of Janet Jackson, you think of these amazing videos. You think of the hairstyles. You think of a couple other things on her, unfortunately. You think of all these things and you fail to realize that there is music involved. Even though there are songs that you sing and hum along with, the first thing you think about is like, if somebody's like, oh, uh, nasty, you're like, oh man, she did that flip in that video. You start thinking about the video. That's a real good answer, because I could not come up with how she wasn't the first person that everybody thought of, because Janet's about as big as they come, so. The reason that I've got you on board today, Captain Chris. Oh, Captain that's a, Chris, that's my other name, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> known as Captain Chris from WPRK in Orlando, Florida. I, being the type of music geek that I am, I think about records first and foremost. And this is discography, so even better. I don't think so much about the in-between album stuff. I don't yeah. think about the videos and I made it a point that I wanted to, when I absorbed these Janet Jackson records, I wanted to think about only Janet, Janet Jackson as a human being that makes these records, and not think about how it plays into her very, very famous family. Unfortunately, when we talk about the early years, we do have to talk about the family. You gotta. And this is why I've got you here. To think of her career, you really gotta think back, not really to the Jacksons, not even really to Michael Jackson, but to Joe Jackson, because he's kind of the linchpin for all of it. And basically, once he gets the family in on the Vegas uh, strip show of 74, that's her first acting experience, doing the Mae West impersonations and all that stuff. So he gets her in the show business door that way. And it was really him who, who put it in her head, or not even in her head, which is basically like, Okay, now we're gonna start recording. So I don't wanna use the words forced upon her, but I don't think exactly it was her 100% choice to become a recording artist for starters, you know. The reason that I personally felt that we couldn't jump into talking about these records without talking about the family is because Janet probably wouldn't have gotten a record deal. Now, I'm speaking purely uh, before the debut albums even yeah. come out. Janet, even if she were just an actress yeah. on Good Times or just an actress from Different Strokes, I don't believe she could have even gotten the record deal if she wasn't a Jackson, which that's where I went, okay, to tell the story honestly. You, yeah, you gotta, because you gotta. because not only because of the, the, the level uh, uh, that she was at at the time, but also the level of shyness that she had. You can see a lot of that. Like, um, for example, now I entered the picture around 1980, because that's when I'm born, but at, at, at that point, she's on different strokes. On one particular episode, she's saying a song called The Magic Is Working, I believe it's called, right? And I think that's on the first album, right? And her performance of it is just her in front of like the Drummonds, you know, Arnold and Willis and stuff, and she's singing this song. And you can tell just the nervous energy in her as she kind of dances around, doing some pre-Janet moves, and you know, singing this song just out in the open or whatever and that's I think literally almost like a, like a year maybe before the album comes out the first one and without any further ado let's talk about that first record it's called simply Janet Jackson and it was released on September 21st 1982 by A&M Records 
She'd had her first TV appearance around 1977 on the Jacksons TV show. She was penning on the heavily popular TV show Good Times, and her brother had just knocked things out of the park with Off the Wall. So her dad, Joe Jackson, suggested, hey, you might want to look into music as a job. And probably pressured her into doing so, while Janet wasn't even sure if she wanted to do such a thing with her life. I mean, who isn't even old enough to vote that's thrilled about being pushed into the family business at all? And celebrities weren't strangers to vanity albums, so getting much success out of an album that arose due to a mixture of nepotism and cashing in? Well, it'd have to be pretty stunning to make you forget about how it came into existence. And the results? Well, you've seen it in cutout bins for years. The cover is the extreme close-up of Janet's teenage face in a swimming pool with a few flowers floating near her for good measure. This is an album that looks exactly like it sounds, and it's really up to the listener if that's a good or bad thing. Her first name ain't Baby, but if you're nasty and looking for Miss Jackson, you're not going to find it on this album, which feels like... I don't know, this record feels like it could have been drummed up for any star of television at the time, had their vocals slapped on top, and the results wouldn't be that much different. And Janet is a great vocalist. There's no way to argue that, but hitting all the right notes is the way of the walk on this debut. Rather than sounding confident or terribly distinctive, it just sounds right. Like, okay, yeah, you hit the note and then you move on. Heck, it might be a good thing that Janet lost the battle to keep her last name off the cover, fearing that the album wouldn't have been judged on its own merits, and the nepotism actually might have helped here. Okay, record geek talk. First off, the digital masters are wildly different than the LP. At first, I was just playing the LP version that I'd bought for my wife, the Janet Completist, and when I'd play this on the go through Spotify, I found that, for example, the opening Say You Do had at least an extra minute at the beginning, whereas the vinyl just sort of kicks right into the tune. goes on for quite some time. Sounds kind of like an off-the-wall outtake, especially the string stabs. It's highly repetitive, but more like uh, Pete Townsend's face-the-face -face repetitive, like building to something. And it's arguably the highlight here, which doesn't bode as badly for the rest of the album as such a statement might otherwise suggest, but front-loading an album with the most striking songs is a pretty common pop record device. Young Love takes the repetition to rather grating extremes. Now, it's not bad, but it hammers home the repeated refrain until it goes far past earworm territory into something almost like, you will remember this song. One of the better aspects of the tune though, 1982 was just on the cusp of when pop, R&B, or just bubblegum soul in general was about to go fully synthetic, presumably to cut studio time in half. Unfortunately, with the loss of these real live horns and bass guitars that would follow, a good portion of that bubblegum soul from this era can sound a bit interchangeable, and Janet skirts that with real live brass instruments popping in to keep the song out of, I don't know, like soul meets craft work, if that's a thing. I mean, th this song is really repetitive.
Love and My Best Friend is the only track on Janet's debut of its type, but it's such an innocent and pure ode to, well, best friendship that it's just the right kind of saccharine for a record of this nature. Plus, as with most of the lyrics on the album, it's relatively vague and can be applied to any best friend you can come up with. A human. A dog. A stuffed popple. A real popple. A talking can of mixed vegetables. But then you got stuff like this on the record. That's a bit of Come Give Your Love To Me, which kicks off with a pretty striking electric guitar that's bordering on reminiscent of the mid-80s B-52's guitar sounds. And after so much synth pop, so many can sounds, and so much stadium-rattling computerized snare drums, this little hint of an organic tone really jolts you in the best possible way. And this was a single that didn't do too poorly on Billboard's R&B singles charts, made it all the way to number 17. Didn't do quite as well as Say You Do, which hit number 15 on that same chart, but Come Give Your Love To Me also crossed over into the mainstream singles charts, peaking at number 58, making this tune the most successful song on the album on the pure technicality of numbers. Of course, numbers don't mean diddly when it comes to showing how successful a song is at sticking in your head, especially when it comes to singles. I mean, Stairway to Heaven wasn't released as a single, yet it became the most played song of all time on FM radio, while the Beatles tune, Yesterday? Well, that one was never even released as a single in the Beatles' home country, yet it went on to be arguably the most covered song of all time, if we're not counting Happy Birthday. The intersection between this tune's chart success and its relative obscurity is a great example of the main things that these songs are missing, which is really just... It boils down to staying power. No matter how much they attempt to drill these beats, riffs, grooves, and the chorus lyrics into your head, you've got to actively try to pay attention and remember something. Doesn't mean that it's not enjoyable, but I can stand behind the statement that this album is just super unimposing, and when it comes to Janet, that's not the most desirable outcome. I was really surprised to learn that a track called Don't Mess Up This Good Thing didn't chart as a single at all. Now, it suffers from the same issues of repetition that plagues a good portion of this record, but it's one of the most immediately attractive grooves on the disc. Rolling Stone magazine called this one of the most disappointing debut albums of all time, but it's worth remembering that Janet Jackson's debut came out at a time where you could have a few records that didn't set the charts on fire while you found your feet, and it's a good thing, too. If Janet's musical career was going to live or die based on just this album alone, it's safe to say that this season of discography wouldn't exist at all. It's sunny, it's on the nose, and Janet Jackson's first record is only part of the prequel. I said a mouthful about Janet's debut. What do you think about it? And specifically, was this the kind of thing that maybe you have memories of? Like, were these tracks getting played around the house on just, you know, the radio being left on in the corner or something? Or basically, was it the niche hit that I think it is? Or was it completely not even a, par a component in your world? 
I wouldn't say that it was a major component in our world based on the fact that being two years old didn't have much radio control. The radio control was basically held by an 11 year old, my brother. So we're still in the mix. So he was he would basically play a lot of things that were of the day. So that was stuff like your zap, you know, zap and Roger. He was playing the time. I remember a lot. Prince, uh, you know, because everything was kind of regional and I guess the South definitely had the Minneapolis thing even though it was from up north but I do recall songs like Say You Do I do remember Young Love and I remember her being on stuff like Soul Train at that point my takeaway ultimately of the debut record is that it's not unenjoyable but you gotta really play this thing a ton to get any personality out of it. Now, that being said, this thing ends up on lists of most disappointing debut albums of all time and whatnot. Meanwhile, if you look at the actual numbers for what she did, she actually was quite successful and she charted really well for an album I can't remember anything from. And it's one of those things where, like, I don't, I don't agree with that whole thing where they say, oh, it's one of the worst albums. I don't, I don't think so because of the fact that, like, okay, first of all, she had no self-involvement, so that, that takes one thing out of it for me, meaning that, like, I don't think I could base it, like, on her. You can't be like, oh, you had the worst album and you really had nothing to do with it other than sing it. And she didn't sing terrible. That's what I felt. I just think the material didn't suit her at her age and the album fell flat on a couple of things but there's some there's some bangers like like don't mess up this good thing I that that's a jam dude that's a total jam <laughs> just show the power of those songs I, I saw a clip on youtube of janet in, in concert and she busted out young love you know like it was like 2008 2009 and the audience lost it like they were like they couldn't believe that she even was, was playing something that old it yeah was, i heard that it yeah. took that amount of time for her to even realize that these records had fans that's how yeah. universally despised they are the first two in particular indeed like i remember like i looked up like in research of this looked up a lot of like old jet magazines because yeah. <laughs> if there's one place that would have been would have been recording like or like reporting about this would either be like either fresh right on or jet magazine so that was the one i had access to and it was just basically little blurbs talking about the actress from different strokes you know and from the jackson family has this new album coming out and stuff so and those songs like young love charted for a little bit and then they kind of just fell out of the mix like a week or two later you know so you mentioned some missteps uh, that you hear on the record, and I'm wondering if yours matches up with mine, because we haven't discussed this. Like, I will go on the record saying that Janet Jackson's debut album is a single called Say You Do yeah. with a lot of generous B-sides. Yeah. <laughs> That's my <laughs> With Young Love being away. the strongest B-side after that. So how about you? What's your takeaway? Um, I would say, like, for me, it's, uh, if it would have been condensed down to probably Say You Do, Young Love, Don't Miss, uh, Mess Up This Good Thing, and Come Give Your Love To Me, that, that would have been a great sort of single slash EP, like, like, just sort of like, this is what she's coming out with, let's see what's happening next, but there's sort of like those songs like, I think, Love and My Best Friend, that's yeah. dead in the center, which, I mean, 
It's got a catchy little part that goes around and around, but it's dead in the center of the song, and it just seems like one of those things that they would thrust upon a, t a teen actor in that era of like, here's a song, and you know, you see him singing it because you've you've seen this like trend over and over again with other like you know i wouldn't say child actors but even teen actors like john travolta had records you know <laughs> lawrence hilton jacobs like from the Walter dude Bank from Park. general hospital everybody, jack wagner yeah so everybody's got records and they would always have that syrupy ballad that was her syrupy ballad just stuck in the middle of that record loving my best friend though is an important linchpin i think because it actually while maybe not being the greatest song ever written, ends up being really ahead of its time. If you've ever heard the first two Britney Spears records, those have tracks like Dear Diary and Email My Heart, and it sounds identical to what those ballads sounded like at the time. So weirdly, Janet's debut gets to be forward thinking. It's timeless. <laughs> we just made an argument for the first Janet Jackson record. There you go. And I mean, like, how can you beat the the album cover? She's 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 cute as a button on the album cover, and I think it came with a poster. I mean, you can't beat that. So it was it's geared towards the teen market, like. Like, and the beautiful thing about it is, like, she has her album. She does contribute to the biggest selling album of all time that year because she sings on PYT. And, you know, so even though she had, I guess, like, I would say, like, not so great a year with her own album, I think that that album, now in retrospect of what's to come, that album is stronger than people gave it credit for. No one's gonna stop the music. No one can keep us from the sounds You can't keep the good ones down You know it's time I made my move The second Janet Jackson record, Dream Street, was released on October 23rd of 1984, also on a Records. And if Dream Street seems unfocused, that's because the record has at least four producers, and unless they were all conferring together somehow, there's pretty much no chance for much cohesion. Giorgio Moroder being on board or not, Dream Street has a larger amount of memorable moments than the debut, but that doesn't mean that it's not still a bit messy. It came out in a post-thriller world, and there was no reason to think that Janet's time hadn't come. Though by 2003, Dream Street had only sold around 40,000 copies, and to put that into perspective for you, most albums by Yola Tango have sold around six times that amount at the very least, but that does not mean that there are not joys to be found all over Dream Street. the drums sound bigger, and the horn stabs are far more synthesized. Janet sounds like she's singing with a bit more conviction on the opening Don't Stand Another Chance. In fact, there's probably more going on compositionally in that opening track than nearly the entirety of her debut combined, and that's not to diminish the debut, but rather said to accentuate how much Janet is growing already, even if she isn't behind the wheel creatively. Or is she? Because you've got her brother Marlon behind the production wheel for this track, and Michael even chimes in with some ad-libs in the background. 
The 12-inch single remix is really where it's at if you want to get the most out of the tune, but as Janet doesn't seem to back these early albums, you may have to do some digging to find yourself a way to hear it in full. Now, Two to the Power of Love is a little bit more problematic. This is where Dream Street's Crisis of Confidence first really rears its head. Now, she's doing a duet with Cliff Richards, and Cliff wasn't and isn't a household name in the United States, but he was absolutely revered for a time in the United Kingdom, which should have ensured at least a little bit of success, even if it was just vicarious curiosity, and it's pleasant adult contemporary stuff. But communication, communication, this one's cool. Communication's really cool in this sort of time capsule way with its cute lyrical nods to computers and databases while still sounding every inch like a creation from 1984. It has a soundtrack feel while also having one of those the sound of the future today motifs. And Fast Girls, while seeming a bit more mature on the surface, is musically cut from the same cloth, really. But on the flip side, Pretty Boy has some soon to be known as classic Janet vocal harmonies that permeate the track. But it doesn't have a memorable enough hook to hang its proverbial hat on. Meanwhile, the outro has a pretty cool synth solo while Janet chants, play that funky horn. This one's begging for a remix that accentuates its strengths above almost all the other tracks on Dream Street. Overall, it's not a terribly far cry from, say, When I Think of You, but it's definitely less refined, and it hardly needs to be nearly seven minutes in length. Janet appears on the cover of Dream Street, leaning on a pink motorcycle's headlight. It's either supposed to make her look a little bit dangerous, or it's a fairly coy pun on Fast Girls, the second single from the album. Oddly, though nothing regarding this album went down as a blockbuster, some stations around Michigan and in Ohio started playing fast girls of their own volition, and folks that grew up on urban radio in those eras remember it being every bit as big of some of what was to come. Isn't regionality wild? And that all happened because DJs could make judgment calls on what their audience might like to hear. <sighs> I miss those days. Thanks, Telecommunications Act of 1996. Anyways, Dream Street. To me, all right, I know this is gonna be kind of an insane comparison, but I'll show my work. To me, it sounds a lot like the Elm Street group, which was a group made up in the late 80s to cash in on the Nightmare on Elm Street craze. It was this faceless group of studio musicians that mostly covered 60s tunes like In the Midnight Hour and Do the Freddy, with Robert Englund occasionally Popping in to yell a little bit like Freddy Krueger. Ah! 
mean, come on, please tell me you hear it as well, right? I'm not alone in this. I can't be alone in this. You hear the similarities, right? That that was a little hint of the Elm Street group doing Do the Freddy. And come on, tell me you didn't almost think, geez, what a weird beast. Okay, anyways. Technically, since the Elm Street group's album, Freddy's Greatest Hits, didn't appear on record store shelves until 1987, technically Dream Street is ahead of its time. I'm not sure if I mean that as a compliment or not. There's no actual bad Janet Jackson music, but while the first two albums aren't exactly beloved, they're certainly a bit more enjoyable than their reputation. Janet doesn't really agree, and she'd be making that very clear in her next move. Dream Street, not even as beloved as the debut. I, I see Dream Street getting knocked way more than the, de the debut, even though Janet's debut is usually considered to... It's got the reputation of being the worst, but in actuality, Dream Street seems to really get hated on. Yeah. What's your takeaway? My takeaway on Dream Street, um, like, I remember that more than the first album, like, from my childhood, because of the video for Dream Street. And now she's on fame, as I recall. Yeah, that album was in my compare, like in comparison to the first one, in my opinion, weaker than the first one. It was almost like too many producers kind of spoiled that broth going on right there because you got like Marlon Jackson producing something you got Jesse Johnson producing stuff you got a myriad of other producers like everybody's got their hand in a pot and is giving her this kind of unfocused sound not that the first album was so focused but at least almost there was sort of a weird cohesiveness to the TV bopness of it all now she's a little bit older and then this album sort of just has like almost trendy of the day sort of things like you know it's got the it's got the drum machine everybody's using it's got that the, the, the synth pads that everybody's using but at the same time the material ceases to be as interesting as the first so i feel like the one of the biggest strengths of the debut we all know that there was that changeover where if you did soul or funk People started cutting corners, yeah. and instead of doing that live drum kit, that live bass, yeah. they would do it synth. And this really changed the feel yeah. of everything. While, uh, I mean, I get it. Who doesn't want to play with a new toy instrumentally? But it's my belief that had they produced Dream Street as organically as they did the first one, yeah. the material would have been better for it. But then I think about a song that's actually got some live stuff like that duet with Cliff Richards. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and then I go, oh, no, maybe not. Yeah, so you know, yeah, like, what do you think? Do you yeah. like it more for being more synthesized? I understand it for being more synthesized. It seems like, well, yeah, that it's 1984. That's what you should be doing. Only based on the fact that as a child, that's all I was hearing in 1984. And you got to remember, but in 1984, it was just Jackson Central up until about late summer when it became Prince Central. But from 83 to 80, summer 84, it's Jackson Central, meaning Michael Jackson has done the whole thriller deal. The victory tour is just about to happen. Reby Jackson has centipede. 
Oh, look, he's such a jam, too. I will not hear anybody say such a good jam. A I will fight somebody about Centipede. <laughs> <laughs> Latoya Jackson as Heart Don't Lie. The fact is, all the Jackson siblings have now put out albums in some form in 1984, including Michael Jackson being on the Victory album a little bit, singing on uh, Rockwell, Somebody's Watching Me. So the Jacksons are inundating America and beyond. And Janet Jackson has Dream Street, which is... <laughs> and it's the weakest effort, unfortunately, even behind Heart Don't Lie, which I remember being a little bit higher in esteem than Dream Street, which, you know, in retrospect is a little crazy. <laughs> but yeah, when you put it by those terms. When you put it by those terms, just, I mean, thinking about the trajectory of what we would know later. I'm just saying, at the time, it seemed totally plausible. All I know is that album, like, definitely, I don't recall it around my house much. I do remember the videos and stuff. That's really where the image starts to come in. I remember she's a girl from fame, and she sometimes sings, you know, and the rest of her family, super, super famous. <laughs> yeah. Do you got a, a particular, like, Chris's pick, the jam from Dream Street, like the one that I mean, you're like, like, at least this song's on the record. Like for me, it's "Don't Stand Another Chance." It's the it's the it's the first single. Like that that is the strongest effort on the record to me, just because it's got it's got some good turnarounds. I do like like Marlon's production style, which you hear a little bit on the Victory album. If you listen to the um the song "Body," yep. on on uh, they, they sound similar, and he produced that one too. So it's like, all right. That makes sense. So based on me loving Bobby when I was like four years old and still to this day, that song still resonates with me. And you can hear Michael Jackson singing in the background and stuff. So it's a family affair. So it's like it gives you all these warm fuzzies alongside being the catchiest song on the record, in my opinion. So at the time, Joe is uh, watching Ruin. Michael go you know through the stratosphere bigger than big could possibly yeah. be the only thing that could possibly rival it was elvis's ascension exactly. in the late 50s and that's really just a matter of who do you like better because they're so neck and neck yeah. as far as what they changed so. so that's the first one that joe to my knowledge didn't have anything to do with was thrillers so do you think that all these jackson kids running around being like i got a solo album too do you think that that's all Joe going like, if it's got the Jackson name, it will just sell and pushing them to do it? Or do you think that the kids were like, I could do it too, and now the the musical climate is open to wanting to hear me? I would like to think that it varied from kid to kid. I think with Janet, she might at the time have been very just content with acting and would have been fine with just doing that. But he had her on on the uh, on the on, on the singing train. I know it, he, he was basically representing all the all the girls at that point. I believe it, I'm not sure about Reedy, but I know definitely Latoya until she got Jack Gordon in her life, and then you know he was basically I felt in '84 grasping at straws based on the fact that Michael had left in like '81 '82 like pre Thriller. Then I think. The, the rest of the brothers kind of left later on like they were kind of getting represented by Don King if I'm not mistaken for the victory tour and all that thing you know um, Michael Jackson had uh, Frank DeLeo all that stuff was starting to you know, fall apart the Jackson family dynasty that he's put together is falling apart as far as him being managers concerned so 
So I think Janet being one of the last ones, he's just like, all right, you know, we got you on fame. We got you doing this, that, and the other and stuff. And it's like that album doesn't capture the imagination based on, I think, weak material, um, varied production, and just the inundation of Jackson. Which, you know, everybody gets broken of the spell, basically, by, like, Born in the USA, like a virgin in Purple Rain. What you're hearing in the background there, that's a... This is a little bit of a B-side from the Dream Street era, and this is why I said, really, don't get me started on the B-sides. So, are you having a good time? Great. I want other people to have that good time that you are having. Share the good time. If you are enjoying this episode, please tell your friends about it. You got a friend who's way into Janet Jackson or the Jackson family in general? Please tell them all about this season of discography. Also, maybe you know a friend who's super into Frank Zappa. We reviewed most of his catalog as one song (laughs) in the last season check it out. And listen, I know it might seem silly, but whatever avenue delivered this podcast to you, if you could rate and review us on that platform, say it's Stitcher or Podchaser or iTunes or whatever, if you could leave a rating, hopefully a higher one, and uh, you know, a little review if you've got a moment, it really mean the world to us. It makes our show easier to find. You know, because 2018. And hey, do you want to interact with discography? Well, not only can you do it at Facebook, at facebook.com slash discography on CPN, as in Consequence Podcast Network, or you could just search discography on Facebook and eventually you'll find us. That's a good place to talk to us. Or if you want to talk to me specifically on Twitter, I'm at MarkFi. That's M-A-R-C-F-I. As in there's Hi-Fi, Mid-Fi, Lo-Fi, and MarkFi. And maybe you want to check out what I'm doing. Well, first of all, I've made so many records in the last 20 years, I can't even begin to count them. You can stream them on Spotify if you'd like. Just search for me, Mark with a C. Easy peasy. Or you can go to Bandcamp at markwithac.bandcamp.com. That'll allow you to stream pretty much anything, and it'll show you the merch store where you can buy uh, T-shirts if there's any left. Or you can get the records on vinyl, cassette, compact disc, whatever floats your boat. I want to help the boat stay steady. I really should avoid the nautical metaphors, but here we are. Also, I've been doing this, as I mentioned, for nearly 20 years, and I've got a lot of plans in store for how to celebrate my 20th anniversary. And if you want to help me get those things done, well, not only would I be appreciative, but it's really easy for you to do. Go to patreon.com slash mark with a C. It works like a monthly tip jar, but I also give you lots of cool stuff in return. And one of the things that you can acquire at that link, at least monthly episodes of my other podcast, The Real Congregation. It began as a radio show in Orlando, Florida, where we produced this show. Later, it became a podcast on the Nerdy Show Network, and now it's exclusive to those that back and support what I do. It's there for the hardcore fans. And if you want to join in, I want to get you some cool stuff. Patreon.com slash Mark with a C. And I can't overstate the importance of the word of mouth. If you are enjoying discography, please drop a link on your Facebook, your Twitter, your Instagram, whatever. If you can share and tell people about it, this is how we get heard. And are you digging on our guest 
Chris Lebrain, did you like that little clip of his tunes that we played you earlier? You can get a hold of some of it at chrislebrainscampaign.bandcamp.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-L-E-B-R-A-N-E-S-C-A-M-P-A-I-G-N. Man, I felt like one of the Bay City Rollers when I did that. Okay, quick musical interlude, and then on with the show. Remember when I said don't get me started on the B-sides? That little clip you just heard is part of a song called Start Anew, which was recorded during the Dream Street sessions, but that didn't make the record, and it completely boggles my mind, and that's why we can't get started on the B-sides. But it is important that we talk about Control, which was released in February of 1986 on a Records. And I think Janet needs to introduce this one for you. This is a story about Control. My Control. Control of what I say, control of what I do. And this time I'm gonna do it my way. I hope you enjoy this as much as I do. Are we ready? I am. Cause it's all about control. And I've got lots of it. If you were just listening to Janet Jackson's discography straight through without context, if you'd somehow walked in blind, if you didn't know she was a television star that was reluctant to have a recording career, if you didn't know that she had famous relatives, and if you didn't know that there was a massive sea change in the back end of who was actually producing this album, you'd still be able to tell that there's a newfound confidence on the aptly named Control. After Dream Street, Janet ran off and eloped with James DeBarge, which ultimately didn't go terribly well. I'd expound on that, but I'm going to try really hard to avoid the gossipy aspects of her life, except where it's completely unavoidable. Otherwise, I'd be sitting here for the next 20 minutes telling you all about this rumor I heard on a DVD called Janet Jackson Exposed about how Janet had a secret love child around this period. Yeah, whatever. I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. But you can't really talk about control without mentioning that her father... Janet's father, Joe Jackson, was running her life, and she decided to fire him, get a new manager by the name of John McClain, and have her next album mostly produced by Prince Protégés, Jimmy Jam, and Terry Lewis. In fact, Joe Jackson had one request, and that's that the pair had to promise that they wouldn't let her sound anything like Prince. The drama with leaving her father behind, you can't really avoid it. And Janet doesn't shy away from it. Hell, the first line she sings on the opening cut, on the title track, they're about getting out from underneath her father's thumb. When I was 17, I did what people told me. I did what my father said and let my mother mold me. She sounds self-assured, focused. The music is still predominantly synth-based R&B, but it's sharp with unexpected key changes and sound effects and more hooks than an illegal ice fishing ring. All you need to know is really in that first song, her first truly great achievement, an undeniable classic. 
Control's one of those albums that's so ever-present and so full of hit singles that it's hard to talk about it as if you, the listener, are only learning about it right now for the first time. That'd be condescending as hell. Come on, you're here. There is no chance you stumbled in to the Janet Jackson season of discography and you weren't fully aware of the songs and vibes on Control. Like, who among us haven't heard the character-defining song, Nasty? You know, the one with this line. No, my first name ain't Baby, it's Janet, Miss Jackson if you're nasty. It's like it takes everything from Dream Street's Fast Girls and Pretty Boys, betters it by a country mile, marries it to a funkier beat than we've heard yet from Janet, and hangs its hat on a killer descending synth riff. Janet's not just in control, she's even doing a bit of foreshadowing of where we'll end up around the velvet rope, but I am getting way ahead of myself. In the mid-80s, Madonna was still a few years away from the empowering lyrics of Express Yourself, so when Janet demands respect and that the object of her affection constantly makes an effort on a track like the sassy classic, What Have You Done For Me Lately, there was simply nothing else like it on pop radio at the time. And it was a well-received message, reaching number four on the Billboard pop charts and number one on the R&B charts. This one was inescapable at the time, and not just for the attitude that resonated with millions of people, but because it's just a fucking great pop song, just like everything else found on Control. Of course, not every song here was such a massive hit, but I suspect that's because if A&M Records had released every single track as a radio single, there'd be no reason for you to buy the album. Maybe? I'm just guessing, because there's nothing here that wouldn't have done quite well. I mean, the angular You Can Be Mine would have done just as well at sticking out and dominating the airwaves of 1986, but they can't all be singles, right? And You Can Be Mine is just as important in Janet's development as the prior tunes I mentioned. Because on the first few albums, Janet had this air of, well, I'll love you if you'll let me. Now, she's letting her suitor know that she's chosen him. She's assertive enough to know what she wants, pursue it, and only a fool would have ran. And if they did run, Janet has her pick, and she knows it. It was all just one big Pleasure Principle was another big tune at the time, complete with an iconic video full of, what else, Janet practicing her dance moves, and its lyrics continue the theme of independence and having the courage to go after the things that please you rather than doing whatever would please those around you. It's actually the song that harkens back in tone most to those first two albums musically, and this is likely due to it being the only song on the record not produced by Jam and Lewis, and rather being brought to life by the keyboardist of the time, yet another Prince protege. It's no slouch, and another deserved classic, yet it's pretty much the only thing here that gives the impression that Janet ever had a fondness for the musicality and production of the debut in Dream Street. It's leaps and bounds away from those songs, but it's good to have that link to the roots when you're taking in her catalog chronologically. And ditto for He Doesn't Even Know I'm Alive, which is a killer tune for, you know, like roller skating rinks at the time, I'm sure, but it's a bit reminiscent of those first two albums in the best possible way. It bests all that we've previously heard before Control, and proves that Janet had really figured out how to own that style. And her need to move on wasn't just personal, but she needed to grow as an artist. And when you hear some of her high notes in this track, she shows off a vocal range that had only been hinted at before now. 
The more assertive Janet Jackson also lightens up just a touch in the more fun and airy When I Think of You. It's one of those tunes you're most likely to hear in, say, a Walgreens nowadays. So Janet's certainly having the last laugh, but man, that intro, that bass line, how does this one not scream instant classic? Let's wait a while. It's very much of its time. Not just because of those super 80s sounding synths, but also, look, this might be lost on younger listeners, but HIV and AIDS wasn't terribly understood at the time. Nevertheless, AIDS was in nearly every news broadcast, and after the rather promiscuous and swing in 1970s America, a song emphasizing and promoting sexual abstinence was the most 1986 thing that ever 1986'd but it also speaks volumes about where Janet was at. The dominance displayed throughout most of the album wasn't necessarily always sexual in nature. And besides, there'd be plenty of time for that in the future. Control might end with a relative quiet storm, but it's the true arrival of an artist that there was next to no reference point for. She beat the curse of the child star Seven huge singles is nothing to sniff at when one considers that Janet was initially reluctant to even pursue this recording career at all, and that those early albums are arguably and alternately cash-ins from her pre-existing television fame, no pun intended, and an attempt from the Jackson family to take advantage of the runaway success of her brother's albums. I'm sure that the latter didn't hurt, as this was, again, in a post-thriller world, but you can't argue that Control is Janet's baby, and no matter what the last name or bloodline associated with the album was, Control was and is a pop blockbuster, and it deservedly took the world by storm. Let's see what Miss Jackson does next with her newfound Control. I've been Mark with a C, and I want to thank you for listening to episode one of season two of Discography. We're part of the Consequence Podcast Network. I record this episode and all discography episodes right here in Orlando, Florida, in my little home studio. It's not much, but hey, it gets the job done. Next week, I'll be back to talk about Rhythm Nation, the Janet LP, and the Velvet Rope. It looks like that might be the way of the walk. I want to thank Chris LeBrain, Captain Chris if you're nasty, for dropping by, and I want to thank Chris Zabriskie for supplying us with all the background music that you've heard, as well as our theme song, which is Air Hockey Saloon, and you can check out more of Chris's work at chriszabriskie.com. Signing off this week, I'm Mark with a C. You're fantastic. You've been such a great audience. I can't wait to finish this journey with you. We'll be around for a few more episodes. Until next time, my friends. Consequence Podcast Network. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.